Hello, I'm Raymond. And I'm Zara, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Professor Adriana Salerno, Chair and Associate Professor of Mathematics at Bates College. Professor Salerno sat down via Zoom with Multifaith Fellows Amy Soto-Garcia and Fabian Mimietz to discuss her childhood in beautiful Caracas, why she considers herself a math therapist, and the importance of being a full human being in front of her students. Hi, I'm Amy. Hi, I'm Fabian. And welcome to Professor Salerno. Thanks for having me. And you can also call me Adriana. I'm happy to be called by my first name. All right. Okay, well... Welcome, Adriana. We have we prepared some questions for you, um, and we're really interested in hearing about your childhood, specifically your um, your earliest memories of childhood and where you were born. Yeah, great. Um, I'm from Caracas, Venezuela, and I was born and raised there. And um, I'm not sure that I have any like, earliest memories beyond, you know, being home. One of the things that I loved that I didn't realize was so odd was that it was always nice outside. It was always the same temperature outside. We always had our windows open. Uh, you could always wear like shorts or pants and a t-shirt to anything. You could go to the beach on any weekend, you know, and like that's because Venezuela is really close to the equator. And Caracas specifically is like in a very temperate zone. It's like in a valley in the mountains and so it's just like very nice out and then I moved to Texas for grad school and then to Maine for my job and like I realized that people have seasons in other parts of the world and it's like sometimes you need different clothes or you can't have your windows open all the time or you need air conditioning or you need heat you know and like I, I think that I didn't realize that I had such a privileged childhood where I could like go play outside at any time because it was always nice. And so those are some memories that I really cherish now. This, this idea that like I could always be, you know, smelling fresh air and going outside. Do you think there was um, any childhood experience or any specific person in maybe your younger adult years that brought you on the path kind of from the um, tropical Caracas to the cold Maine? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a great question. There, there are a few people who really influenced me, and it's mostly my parents and my grandparents. And something that, that's really stuck with me is I come from a family of immigrants. My mom was born and raised in Venezuela, but my grandmother, her mother, was from Wisconsin, and my dad was from Uruguay. And so, so a lot of people in my family have sort of moved and relocated to different places. And so it's really funny that like my grandmother moved from Wisconsin to Venezuela, sort of like getting away from the cold. Uh, and I'm like moved towards the cold. And so, <laughs> uh, and so uh, yeah, it's sort of an interesting thing. But I think of my parents as, as being key figures in, in my development, especially as a mathematician. So my dad is not a math person, 
or he doesn't think of himself as a math person. We can have a much longer conversation about how I think everyone is a math person. It's just <laughs> sometimes you don't think of yourself as one. And so he uh, he was very artistic, and so he read a lot. And so I have a lot of sort of artsy inclinations that come from my dad. And then from my mom, I got the the math, the desire to do math. And like she she's very she's a psychology professor, retired now, but she really loved statistics and math. And uh, she was a very sort of um, mathy psychologist. And I think that seeing a woman be a really good and really confident in math was one reason I saw myself as being able to do that. I think, you know, my love for math is, is my own individual passion, but I think it was important, especially in a country like Venezuela, where sort of there are more traditional gender roles that my mom didn't fit a very traditional gender role. It, it opened a lot of doors for me. I think just seeing seeing someone I, I loved and admired being able to do that. To borrow a question from the podcast on being, did you have a particular religious or spiritual background in your childhood? Not really, but in Venezuela, Venezuelans are for the most part uh, culturally Catholic. And so I think I have a cultural uh, attachment to a lot of Catholic traditions. Like I was baptized, I did my first communion. My older sister got married in a church. My, I'm the godmother of one of my nieces. So, you know, we have, we have all these traditions, but they're more, it's a lot more of a cultural aspect of our lives. Um, my parents were not particularly uh, religious. We didn't talk about that too much at home. I, if I were to describe them as anything, I would say, you know, culturally Catholic, and sort of secular humanists is I think the word that people use. So very socially aware, socially responsible, very, and I think that's, that, that's part of this culturally Christian thing of like, you know, helping others and, and that part of, of the spiritual culture. And I think we all find a lot of connection and, and meaning and, and human relationships and community, but, but there was not like a specific creed or, or set of, of things that we followed and yeah it's not a it's not very formal <laughs> it's just a very and but in in Venezuela it, the Catholicism is much more informal than say in the U.S. like we celebrate Holy Week which is you know Good Friday and uh, Easter Sunday like we we have the whole week off from from work and school but everyone goes to the beach and parties, you know? And so it's not like a very like strict observance of the rights. I mean, for some people it is, but for a lot of people, it's just like, these are holidays, but at the same time, a lot of the observances are a little bit more relaxed than what I see for Catholics in the US, for example. So it's, it's sort of an interesting like mixture of things. Um, so kind of continuing on to your earlier life during college, can you tell us some, um, what was the, the campus climate like? Sure, yeah. Um, the university in Venezuela that I went to was a Universidad Simón Bolívar. And it's a sort of medium-sized school, large compared to Bates. So it's like maybe 10,000 students, um, but small compared to other like public universities in Venezuela. So a few things are, are very different. So it's college in Venezuela, is free. And so you only have to pay like some fees for like registration, but like they're like very, very small nominal things. And even then some students could apply for scholarships in free universities because we understand that going to college 
is still time where you're not working and making money. Like for some people, that is still a, a huge privilege to not work for four years or for five years, which in my case, because University of Venezuela is five years in general. Uh, college in Venezuela is usually not residential. And so I lived with my parents throughout college and I would you know, drive to school and drive back home. And I think in part because it was free, they were like, well, being here is a privilege. And so, you know, if you don't deserve to pass calculus, you don't pass calculus, right? And so it was very, very hardcore grading. I took one class where everyone failed except for two people. And one of them was me and I barely passed. Like passing grade in that class was 50 out of 100. That's like passing in, in that university. I passed with a 51 and um, everybody else failed. And no one cared. Like it was like, well, you know, you just didn't do well enough, and and that was it. Like I, I, mm. I did that at Bates, I'd be fired in a second for good reasons. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would not that would not fly in, in universities in in the states. And so when I started teaching in, in at University of Texas, when I started teaching my own classes, I was pretty hardcore too, because that's what I had learned. And so then, like some people good people were like, let me let me help you see how things are here. And I was actually much better pedagogically speaking to be more kind and and flexible with students but the way that I I went to school was just like just work 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 no homework no teaching assistants no office hours like it's just like professor lectures for a while you take notes good luck on the exam Texas was a little bit less hardcore but it's still pretty impersonal with like 200 people taking the same calculus class right and then Bates is, is much more what I what I feel like happy with where I can, you know, Amy took one class from me and and now we can still say hi to each other on, on campus and like we can we can smile and we can get back in touch. You know, this is this is sort of a, what's special about a place like Bates. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. But also was that process for you quite linear, like after college, I'll go after grad school or how was that for you? Ah, no, it was after five years of hardcoreness. <laughs> and I was like the only woman in my program too. And like, so I was, I was done with school when I, when I graduated. I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And so I took, I decided to take a year off to think about things. And I was working a little bit. I mean, I, I was able to live with my parents, continue living with my parents. And, you know, not everybody can or wants to do that, or, or it's not good for them to do that, right? So I was happy living with my parents. I stayed there and I was tutoring high school kids in calculus and, and algebra and stuff like that. And um, that's how I made a little bit of money. And during that year, I applied for graduate programs and I took the GREs and all that. I wasn't sure I wanted to go to grad school, but I said, well, I might as well apply. And so I got into one program and again, I was like, well, I could go or not, but let's try it out, you know? And so I was never super sure about the decisions I was making, but I've always been like the kind of person who's like, well, let's try it out. Let's see, let's see how this goes. And, and unless I have like something better in mind, which I didn't. And so I, I decided to go. And then during that year, it was fantastic because like I got to do photography classes, I got to take a screenwriting course, I got to climb mountains and train to climb high mountains in Ecuador. And um, so I got to sort of like do a lot of the things that I loved doing, 
but that, you know, studying hardcore math kind of puts a damper on. I mean, not because I didn't like math, but because I didn't have room for a lot of stuff in this, like, I know in my heart that the ideal school for me would have been a place like Bates where I could have done math and a whole bunch of other things. And it would have been a part of my education. Whereas in, in this university, like I only took math classes and they were already decided for me. So that year off was, was lovely. And the most important thing that happened during that year off was I started missing math a lot. I was like, oh, I was tired, but I actually do love this. I just need to do it differently or make sure that I still make room for the other things that nurture me and, and not just focus on math. And then when I went to grad school, I made very conscious decisions to, you know, to stick with it as long as it was working for me. And as long as I wasn't like forgetting myself. So actually I'm interested, I'm, I mean, I'm an international student too, and I'm interested <laughs> in your experience of going to the US from Venezuela as like, um, you know, from Venezuela, like how did that feel? Um, uh, we had a discussion earlier about this accents as well. I want to hear a little bit more about that, if you could elaborate. Yeah, sure. Um, so, well, like I said, like I, a lot of people in my family have emigrated to different places. So, so I had a sense of people have traveled to other places and lived in other places. But until the point that I moved to the United States, I had been living with my parents and with my sisters. And so I was 23 years old when I moved to not just out of the house, but to a whole new country and a whole new city by myself. And so it was actually quite shocking at first because I was like renting this apartment. Now I'm living by myself. I'm like paying bills. I'm going to grad school, but I'm also teaching. And so I have like a job and I'm a student and I'm, I'm meeting, I, I don't know anyone there. And, um, and the language wasn't so much of a problem because my grandmother was from Wisconsin. And so I had heard English spoken at home since I was young. I didn't start speaking it until I went to school, but my mom enrolled my sisters and I in a bilingual school. And so then um, I started learning it when I was young. And I think I knew how to say the words or how to pronounce things because I heard it at home. But it was still not the most natural language for me. Like my, my first language is still Spanish. Mm. Um, of course, now I've lived here long enough that I can switch back and forth pretty easily. And I am bilingual in a sense, but I didn't grow up being bilingual. Some kids learn two languages since they're babies, right? And so that, that was not my experience, but um, it was really hard understanding the Texan accents because like mm. the, the English I was used to was like movie and TV English. And my grandma's, which is basically, I did not know this, but most movies and TV shows use Midwestern accents, unless they're like set in the South or set in New York, they don't have accents, right? And so then with my students, it was really hard because sometimes they would say things and I'm like, I have no idea what you just said because <laughs> they had too strong of a Texan accent, but I didn't have a strong accent. And so they're like, what is wrong? How, how can you not understand what I'm saying? And I'm like, I'm not used to like not TV English, you know, like we're not my grandma's English. 
And so um, that took a while. And then when I moved to Maine, there were still a couple moments where I'm like Mainer accent or like that, that sort of Boston, Mainer, New England accent where I was just like, I don't know what, you're just, what you just asked me, but I've gotten better at that. But like those, those were challenging. And then, and then my not having an accent, I, I would actually like to have a little bit more of an accent because then when I don't understand something that people say, or like some idiom or some like saying that's like super common somewhere. And I'm just like, I have no idea what that means. Or they make a reference to a TV show or a commercial from when they were kids. And from when I was a kid, I'm like, I watched totally different commercials on TV. You know, I, I did not grow up with that. I don't know what that reference is. And I think it's harder for people to believe me because they, they, they hear me and they assume I'm from here. And so I think that part of my Latina identity is, is kind of erased by my accent and by the assumptions that people mm-hmm. make because I'm, I'm a white Latina. And so then you know however people are wired in this country they assume that if you're white and you speak English well then you're American you know and so and it's like it's not exactly like nice to feel like you know people telling you like you're not really Venezuelan right I've heard this many times and I'm like okay I I don't want to debate the first 23 years of my life with you (laughs) but it's hard and so sometimes I do wish I had a little bit more of an accent some people say they hear it some people might hear it in this podcast I I don't think I don't sense it I don't but some people say that they do hear something yeah I I can relate to that um I'm actually interested, we saw on your bio page uh, that you're, quote, interested in the communication and teaching of mathematics to create a more inclusive and diverse STEM workforce. Um, How does communicating math differently lead to more diversity inclusion? How do you approach it? Yeah, so um, I think we have like a pretty big public relations (laughs) problem in the math community because I think that, so whenever I say that I'm a mathematician, I get a few reactions, but they all come from the same place. Like one is, you must be a genius. I'm not. Uh, the other is, oh, I'm really bad at math. And so then the, the, the people just confess to you their, their, <laughs> you know, their own uh, feelings about, about their abilities in math. And, and I just think that's really unfortunate because I think people in general, are much better at math than they think they are. And so this is something I've been working on really hard as a, as a professor, as a teacher of math. But I also think that there's a part of me that wants to teach beyond the classroom. And so mm-hmm. like teach like our society. And so this is where the communication of mathematics comes in is I wanna help people see sort of the value of math to see themselves as people who can think about math. I don't think everyone should be a mathematician. That would be very weird. But like, I think that a lot of people, especially women, women of color and people of color more generally feel excluded from mathematics or there are things that we do in the mathematical community that actively exclude or gatekeep. And so I think that it's really important to sort of like do this communication of mathematics because I think that the more information people have about this the more opportunities they have to participate fully in STEM and so um, I've known this since I was in college because I would I would do math and like even when I failed an exam which I did many times by the way um, I, uh, I didn't feel like that meant that I wasn't supposed to do math 
right? Like there was something that my identity was strongly linked to mathematics and it didn't have to do with performance. And I think this is where, I, you know, having a, a, a mathy mom helped because I wasn't just like, oh no, this is not for me. I was just like, okay, what did I do wrong? And so then in college, I started realizing that a lot of people just had like math trauma and my mom was a mathy psychologist. And so I told her, I'm like, I'm going to be the opposite of you. I'm going to be a math therapist. And so she's like a psychologist who likes math. And I was like, I'm going to be a mathematician who like helps people emotionally to deal with their mathematics. And so like the funniest part about that is that I kind of predicted the future because at Bates, a lot of what I do mm -hmm. as a professor is talk to students who are like, ah, I'm terrible at math. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but let's let's think about what you can do, what you can control. Like it's like I'm not a math person. It's like, let's rephrase that. You didn't do well in this exam. That doesn't determine your future in mathematics. I did poorly on many exams in the past. And I think we can all agree that I'm whatever quote good at math means because it's not about getting everything right. And it's not about doing things really quickly. It's about sort of being interested in the puzzle and in the struggle and not letting the struggle get to you. But I, I mean, and I work really hard with my students on that. Some of them believe me, some of them don't. Um, but uh, it's, it's sort of like what I love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's it's actually really nice to hear how you reshape how math works and how people relate to math. Honestly, I can confess to it because I was her student and I was one of those students. <laughs> Did I convince you? <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I definitely <laughs> considered math for a really long time, but then I couldn't find a teacher that was as passionate or like in a different sense, oh, very supporting. Yeah. Research shows that young people are increasingly looking to work as a source of meaning in their lives. How do you think Bates can best prepare students to find meaning in today's world? That's a great question. And I think that one thing that's been really important for me has been to not put too much of my own self-worth or, or, or my identity into my work, right? Like, I think that that's something I saw a lot in graduate school was people who their their own sense of self-worth was too tied with whether they were doing well in graduate school or not. And so when things went wrong, it was really, really like a hard blow to their own identity. And for me, and par partly because I wasn't so sure I wanted this as like my life's dream. So for me, when I didn't do well, just like when I was an undergrad, when I didn't do well, it wasn't so much like, a, oh, I'm, I am less worthy of love. I'm more, it was more like, okay, I didn't do that well, you know? And so how do I do that well? Where do I need to get help? But I think one thing that helped me is that I had a lot of other interests and things that nurtured me. So like, as a kid, I loved, you know, I did ballet, I did piano in college, I was in a theater group and I where it was in plays. I was not a great actress, but I tried. I was in a slamming group. And so like different things that not necessarily like added more meaning to my life, but that nurtured me in different ways. And so then not one thing was going to be like the thing that makes me me. And so I think something that's really important, and I think Bates does this really well, in part by virtue of being a liberal arts college, 
with so many things happening is that it's giving students this this connectivity or connection to so many different things, right? Like I have students where like math majors and dance majors or math majors and theater majors, right? And that's not to say that the ones who are only math majors and only wanna do math, there's nothing wrong with them. I think that's great too, but it's just, there's, there's space to be all that you want to be and work shouldn't be all of it, in my opinion. I think that it, it can lead to some, to some real disappointment if like work doesn't turn out exactly how you want it to. But if you have, for me also, like just having people and friends in a, in a support group that are really like be there for me, regardless of whether my work is going well or not, like it's not gonna be my, my colleagues or my boss, it's, it has to be other people, right? And so then I think just having like strong relationships and then nurturing all parts of yourself equally and not just your work. I think those are those are important lessons that I learned. And I think I think Bates students for the most part are, are exposed to those things. I think I'm not sure what what Bates would do differently to encourage that, but I think just I think I think something we professors could do better is just, you know, making sure that we, that we are full human beings in front of our students so that they know that they are also allowed to be full human beings in everything that they do. And we're not always great at that because we're, we're busy and stressed and stuff. And so I think that maybe from the faculty side, we could all try to be a little bit more, more vulnerable and more human and show, show that that's okay. Yeah, thank you. We are in the middle of Corona and therefore my next question is Corona-based. Um, given that we find ourselves in the midst of this pandemic, how have you been able to maintain connections with your family, friends, loved ones? It's It's been hard, I have to admit. I mean, I'm, a, I'm what people call a friendly introvert. So I do have uh, like my, my times where I like my alone time, but, but I, really, I really need people and, and community to, to, to do certain things. And so like, I think I, I or, or maybe I just like both of those things. I like socializing and I like my solo time and I like them to be in balance. So the one is there's too much socializing, I get really tired. When I'm too much by myself, I get really lonely. And so I, I like those things to be balanced and they have not been balanced this year. So that's been rough. I've been doing a Zoom happy hour with some friends from graduate school every Friday night. And, um, and in the, it's funny because like, this is the most I've talked, like the most frequently that I've talked to them. Like when, when there wasn't Corona, mm-hmm. I didn't see, I didn't talk to them every week. I didn't call them every week, but this is somehow there's some like happy, good things that have come out of this. Cause like some of them are in California, some of them are in Texas, some of them are in DC. And so like, it's been nice to have like a, a moment where we can all come together. And this was a group that like we were, really close in graduate school we would have like a weekly like tv night where one of us would cook and bake and like you know so it's it's nice to to bring that back and with my family it's been really hard I haven't seen my sisters in like more than a year now like I saw them for Christmas 2019 and I haven't seen my nieces since then too and like Latinos we're very family oriented and so like not seeing my and, and my dad, I haven't seen in a year either. And he's turning 80 this year. And I'm like, am I not going to be there for his 80th birthday? So that's, that's really rough. But you, you try and you try different things. Like I have friends in, at Bates that I, when the weather is nice, we'll 
you know, go for a walk around the, the puddle with some professors that I like, uh, and, you know, just, just trying to do things outside a lot. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. And, and some nice things have happened because of that, but then some things are, are, are much harder. So. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, being the person that you are very versatile, one of your many talents, you love to do storytelling. You've actually been on a few podcasts before this. And so we wanted to ask, what is the inspiration for most of your stories? So um, the, the way that I got into storytelling was through this thing called The Corner, mm. which is a storytelling night uh, that happens at Guthrie's. And it, start, it was started by uh, Professor Michael Sargent, who's a very good friend of mine. And, and he convinced me one day, he's like, you should put your name in the, in the bowl. They have like a bowl where people put their names in, you know, maybe randomly selected to tell a story. And so, and I told a story and I was hooked. I was like, this is, I mean, it's like the parts I like about teaching without having to make sure that people understood what you said. You know, like you can just like, you can just make people laugh or make people think or make, but you don't have to test them afterwards, you know, like you don't have to give them homework. And so, um, and it's, it's just a really fun way to, to share with others. And I mean, in my family, my dad is a storyteller, he's a writer. And so like, we, I don't know, like I grew up telling stories. And so it was really nice way to, to, to use that, that part of my, of my upbringing and, and, and for all of these podcasts and shows, one of the requirements is that they have to be personal stories, things that happen to you. And so I've told stories that I thought were, you know, maybe funny, maybe interesting, maybe a little, some of them were a little sad, but um, I definitely do go to humor a lot more. Sometimes people say I deflect a lot with humor, but um, <laughs> that's fine. And uh, yeah, and so I, I, I tell stories about things that have happened to me. And so mostly traveling stories or stories from like graduate school or yeah, it's, it's just stories about my family. Um, so, so there's a little bit of everything there, but um, pretty much everything I do, I think of in terms of stories, like when I when I give a math talk, I'm always like, well, what's the story I want to tell? What, what do I want people to leave with? And so, yeah, it's just sort of like a very natural thing for me, but there's still a little bit of a skill that you have to develop, right? And some stories come out great. And some stories I'm like, I didn't quite, I didn't quite get what I wanted from that one. And so it's also cool to have like a skill that you are trying to develop, especially as a teacher to always be aware of what the learning process is like. Because I don't want to forget that, that that connects me to my students. The fact that there are things that are hard for me is important because that reminds me that there are things that are hard for my students. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. It sounds <laughs> like you um, kind of ended up bridging math and art, you know, in a way maybe your parents did. Uh, I think that's very beautiful. Um to wrap up, we actually wanted to ask you, when do you feel connected to something larger than yourself and what is it? So I think there's, there's a lot of how I see my life in terms of community. And so I think something larger than myself is, is just being in community with other people. Like when I'm, when I'm teaching a class, I, I like to not just be the professor who's telling her students wise things. I want to be a part of that collective 
and I want students, I want to be an ally, not an adversary for my students, right? Like, so I think when I'm doing my best work teaching is when we're all working together to make, to progress or to learn something. And uh, that's kind of vague, but the, the way that happens is, you know, you include students in some of your decisions. You have opportunities for students to share like feelings or to share like how they did a problem or what they don't understand. Or, you know, like when you, when you create a good, a good environment where we're all sort of together in this. So it's community, it's connections to other people. It's this sense of connection, of emotional connection, of, and I find that in different ways. And sometimes, sometimes the storytelling helps with that because it's like, you know, you're in a room with a whole bunch of people who are listening to your story and then you switch and then you're listening to someone else's life story. And it's just so, so lovely to have like those opportunities and, uh, and just like chatting with my friends and spending time talking to people and, and I don't know, just like feeling love for other people. I just think that this is, for me, like my family and my friends and, 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 and also, you know, my students and my colleagues and it's sort of just like this, this sense that we're, that we're making others better and we're making each other better. I think this is some of the things that like have been really important during COVID is that like, we're all in this together, that, that sense of like, we, I'm not wearing a mask to protect myself only. I'm wearing a mask to protect the people around me as well, right? And so this this sense of like collective responsibility and like and responsibility to to others um, that really drives me and moves me. And so um, I'm always I'm always happiest when I know that that I'm doing something that's helping other people and me, you know. Like, but but like <laughs> but I I feel like you know if if I do something that is only rewarding to me. I'm like, okay, that was nice, but it's not as nearly as fulfilling as like doing something that I can share with others or doing something that helps others. Like that's really what moves me, what drives me is like, you know, really thinking about the, the community good. Um, I remember my freshman year when I came into your class and I realized you were Latinx, I was just like, wow, someone in the STEM department that is a woman of Latinidad. And I was just like, amazing. Cause I was, I felt so lost. And I remember I came to your office hours and I was like, tell me your story. Like, how did you do it? Tell me that I can do it as well. Whether that be through math or anything, I'm just like, I just need someone there. And so thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your story with us today. Yeah. And I think that wraps it up. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to the Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longstore, and Professor Salerno for sharing her story with us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time. <laughs> 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 Beautiful. All right.